Welcome to Lateral Conversations. My name is Thomas Mark. This is a podcast about the evolution of consciousness, psyche and culture. I speak here with people who have something important to contribute to the development of spirit and society. My guests are therefore artists, philosophers, academics or activists, people not only with great ideas, but also the willingness to put them into the world. By doing so, I hope to contribute to the evolution by finding and exploring ideas and finally providing them to you. There's nothing more powerful, Victor Hugo once said, than an idea whose time has come. And if such a time for an idea has come, we can only find out by talking about them. Thomas Birkmann is a Swedish entrepreneur, a member of the Club of Rome, author, philosopher, and so much more. And I had the very distinct pleasure of talking to him. He just came off of the Metamodern and Emerge Festival in Kiev. So naturally, we talked a little bit about this. We also talked about uh, his new book, uh, The World We Create, his personal voyage to metamodernism about market forces and capitalism and universal basic income. Um, we talked also about Keegan's stages of development. All in all, a very pleasurable chat that highlighted the need to grow up, to mature and to take responsibility for the world we actually want to create. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. My name is Thomas Mark. All the best to you. Thank you for participating and joining me at this podcast. I'm was really excited. Um, I'm really excited to, to talk to you about Thank you. Thank your you new book, the world, we, the world We Create, about metamodernism. Um, just for the listeners in Germany who don't know who you are, you are a social entrepreneur, you're an author, you're a philosopher, and you are somewhat of a patron of lots of what's going on in metamodern cycles today. So there was just this um, metamodern festival in Kiev. Did you attend? Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh. Uh, so there was a metamodern festival, but, but we also at the same time had a gathering of um, our Emerge network in, uh, in Europe. So there was an Emerge uh, gathering that I was responsible for arranging that was going on in parallel with this metamodern arts festival and uh, that, that, that was a great both gathering and festival and it was very interesting to do this in uh, in kiev last time we did the gathering was in last year in in berlin right that that was also organized by you as far as i yes. understand right yes. Okay. Yes. So, yes and was it at the same venue in kiev the, those both events or, or was it like uh, uh, or, or close by close right. by uh, um, at least what what was that highlight if i may ask of um, of those events for you what did you get out of it well i i think um, the idea of the emerge gathering was to bring together um, uh, people who are actively seeking to understand what is actually going on in the world right now and what what is it 
that uh, might be emerging right now that could help us move uh, society and, and humanity to uh, the next uh, level of uh, civilization. I think we are at a very, very critical point right now, really at one of these uh, bifurcation points that complex self-organizing systems always eventually reach. And once you reach such a point, then the system can go two ways. Uh, either the system manages to self-organize on a higher, more complex way, often also in a more elegant way in some ways, or the, the system will break down, the system will fragment, and you will have a breakdown of, of, uh, of the system. And I think that the, the Western culture or even the international system today uh, is at such a bifurcation point. And what is happening during the next 10, 20 years will be absolutely uh, crucial, not only for questions like um, uh, environment and democracy, but really for, for humanity. So it's exciting times, and it was really exploring these questions why we gathered these uh, almost 200 people from, uh, wow. all over, from all over Europe, wow. coming from very different uh, disciplines. I mean, so, some, are, some are looking for next level of uh, political thinking. Some are looking for new economic system. Others are coming more from the personal development side, consciousness development side, looking into ways for us to be able as individuals to hold this complexity um, in a better way and to expand our circles of belonging and our ability for, for compassion. Some right. come from the psychedelic uh, scene, some more from the philosophical integral world or metamodern philosophical world. So it was not just a metamodern meta theory, but it was also concrete, concrete appliances and, and uh, politics. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and we were asking first a question in these, let's, did, we did thematic explorations into these various uh, areas. So what, what is happening, for example, in the field of uh, new economic thinking or in the field of, of new political initiatives? Uh, but then the next day we were, we were concentrating on what is emerging in the space between in the context in which we are all active and how can we better understand the, the evolution of the context and the way that these different initiatives and projects actually interact. Right. And I certainly believe that it is in, in the space between these initiatives where uh, emergence might happen. All right, how, in, 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 in what way? Can you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, or, or, and, and also one of the reasons why we um, uh, decided to have this gathering in, uh, in Kiev, in Ukraine, is that I believe that systems change very seldom start at the center of a system. It's usually in the periphery. Right. Where uh, the system is, is in most contact with its uh, context and also 
perhaps can feel the perturbations more acutely. And uh, Kiev is certainly, and Ukraine is certainly um, a frontier town in many, many ways. It right. actually reminded me very much, or reminds me very much about, of Berlin 25 or 30 years ago, when right. Berlin was just on the border between the East and West, and the wall was, was coming down. Mm. And it's in, it's in those uh, uh, locations and in those culture where you really can feel uh, perhaps the uh, change emerging. Right. I always had like problems with groups like like when, when groups like the Integral scene was declaring himself as edge of evolution, when, when the real emergence and the real emergent phenomena are, are happening in other places, you know, when yeah. you, it's like all over the, to, 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 to stay with, with spiral dynamics, all over the spiral, you know, there are new techno technological developments, there are new developments in, in spirituality and in, in mysticism and in, in, uh, in, in, in ecological theories and ph philosophical areas. And so you never know where that actually pops up, you know. And, no, and no. And, and you know, I'm, I'm uh, even though, as you described me as a social entrepreneur today and, 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 and an author, and we will today talk a bit about my latest book, The World We Create, uh, I am basically a, an entrepreneur and a businessman. I mean, that, that's how I spent uh, uh, 30 years as uh, an entrepreneur in um, IT, in property, and in banking. And I built a banking business in Scandinavia and also in Switzerland and sold that business 10 years ago and then really got the opportunity to think about what to do with the second half of my life. Right. And was that, it when that, you got uh, uh, introduced into, into the Club of Rome? Was it at that time? Or? No, no. The, that, that, that was a little bit uh, later. And I would say as a result of my, of my engagement in social change, but also thinking a lot about uh, the future. So how, yet, what, what, what uh, facilitated the, the, the um, development into, into this uh, social conscious thinking, into Club of Rome and metamodernism? What facilitated the, the move towards these kinds of interests? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it was a lot, uh, my experience dur during my years as, as an entrepreneur and as a businessman and uh, later as the chairman of this banking group in in Scandinavia during during five years and the fact that as chairman of a banking group uh, I came in contact with uh, a lot of um, leadership development issues and leadership development consultants and uh, also from personal experience I experienced that perhaps if there was one quality that we that you should really look for in top management and could really be the best predictor of a good performance for a top manager it's really this uh, uh, quality of inner maturity to 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 have come a bit further in your personal inner development and that is something that these um, leadership consultants uh, pointed out to me. I also had this as a personal ex experience as, um, 
and um, uh, what's what strikes me also is that uh, these leadership consultants actually know quite a bit about how to develop this inner uh, maturation how to how to help people grow and um, in, in this growth process you develop capacity not only for cog cognitive complexity not, not only do you develop qualities to be able to hold rapid change and uh, complex situations better but you also develop your ability to take other people's perspective and you develop your circles of belonging and your capacity for compassion. And all of these are, of course, very, very important things today for any business manager. So it was more was like surprised. a natural um, trans transition from a more, say, modernist careerist perspective to yeah, the realization. But, 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 but what, uh, what struck me then, back, even back then, even before I, I left business, was the fact that we are talking about this importance of inner maturation in the business world, but why are we not at all talking about that in society? Right. And um, th that got me into starting thinking about the importance of, of really looking into uh, uh, personal development and the relationship between personal development and societal change. Right. Uh, another thing that, that got me in, thinking and writing about these things was the fact that we also in the corporate world um, know the know of the importance of corporate culture so uh, there were even consultants uh, t um, telling me that uh, if uh, the, the top management or the board of the banking group if you concentrate on getting the corporate culture right and you actually manage to get the corporate culture right then most things will sort themselves out. Whereas if you don't get the corporate culture right, it doesn't really matter how many times you reorganize uh, uh, the bank or how many new directives you send out. So right. there is a realization in business that corporate culture is actually key. Whereas in society, we are not at all talking about societal culture in the same way. So that's when I started, decided that once I left the business world, I wanted to start a foundation in Sweden, uh, which is now the Oak Island Foundation, the right. Air Credit Foundation, and really concentrate on this, uh, exploring this connection between our personal inner development and societal change. Well, that is very interesting what you're saying. I just recently saw um, a presentation of Mark Blythe. I think yeah. he's an eco economist. And he talks about exactly that, how um, corporations are actually able to facilitate change in a way that uh, like populist uh, protest um, or folky protest are never able to accomplish. I mean, he, he takes, for example, the way um, how we deal with climate change now and the climate of American politics and the way they um, have this way of, um, what, what is the English word for that? Um, close their eyes in front of the, the real problems that we yes. have. But that's because like, in, we, we only will see the, the vast majority of effects like in 10, 15 years. And so by then um, we will realize it and the whole economy will change because like, um, 
we actually can see the, the effects of climate change. And so the, 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 the prices of houses will go down and a more eco-friendly politics will arrive and a more green one. And so the, the corporations will have like a huge impact in transforming uh, our culture, sometimes way more than philosophy is able to do. No, and no, so absolutely. B business is, is leading in, in many ways. And I think that one reason why business is more and more picking up on this importance of personal inner development. And now during the last, last couple of years, we see many international businesses in Sweden, for example, Spotify, H&M and Ericsson, realizing that this personal development, this inner growth, is not just something for uh, the top management. They are actually actively supporting all their employees in their personal inner growth because they realize that in a rapidly moving world, more and more, if not all employees, will have to be able to be much, much more self-directing, have exercise a much, much more, much, much larger, larger degree of um, self-leadership and be able to hold the complexity of the whole of the business and be able to take independent business decision, taking the whole of the business into consideration. Right. The world is now moving too quickly for information to be able to be gathered and centralized to a top management level and then be executed through one, two or three year plans. Right. That does not work any longer. And that puts, of course, a lot of um, demand on, on all employees. And we, we see again in, in Sweden and certainly elsewhere, how when employees are given a lot of responsibility and freedom, some employees respond very positively and uh, really appreciate this larger amount of responsibility and freedom. But you have an equally large amount of employees who actually cannot handle this amount of, of complexity and uh, very rapidly burn, burns out. Right. So uh, I think there is a very interesting and important connection between uh, personal development, ability to be able to hold complexity, to have internalized your own locus of control, internalized your own moral compass, and your ability to work within a self-organizing organization. Right, like coming from the sector, how do you employ uh, stage theories like uh, that of, of Keegan uh, into, into like corporations? Uh, you have experiences in that to, to facilitate this, this um, drive to self-authorship or self-transformation so that the employee yeah. gets more conscious and more responsible in, in terms of his own self-management, so yeah, to say. Yeah, so I don't know if, if our listeners are familiar with, for example, as you re are referring to Robert, uh, Professor Robert Keegan's uh, theories of, of uh, ego development, the fact that we as teenagers enter into what he calls the socialized mind and uh, that many people stay in that socialized mind for the rest of their lives. Whereas really the, the demands of modern society, both democracy and, and the market, really um, 
demands from us the capacities of the next step of development, which is the self-authoring mind. And in the socialized state, you, you are very dependent on uh, uh, external authority for yeah, gu guiding your, your life and your work. You like to be told by your boss, if not exactly what to do, at least what is expected from you and how you are evaluated. And uh, yeah, you, you, you need a certain external framing. And, and if you don't get that, that could be extremely, extremely stressful. No, I mean, like in terms of you, you wrote a book before, The Nordic Secret. And in that book, you talked about how the Nordic countries uh, developed a certain social awareness and social um, development in, uh, in, in the beginning of the 90s and 20th century. So, and, and when you're coming from the sector, how do you have personal experiences and bringing employees like to, to facilitate um, stage theory and, and personal growth to employees? You know what I mean? It's like- Yes, uh, no, no, ab uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, I have myself gone, gone through So, some of these leadership development uh, programs, and they can be extremely uh, power, powerful, even life-changing. Right. But, but perhaps you could, uh, this could be a good moment to, for me to say a little bit about this, uh, my previous book that you just mentioned, The Nordic Secret, that I wrote together with my Danish colleague and friend, Lena Anderson. And in that book, we, we are looking at uh, the, the question, how did the Nordic countries all manage this uh, previous transition from the pre-modern societies into modernity, into right. modern societies, in a much, much better way, we dare to say, than any other countries in the world actually did. Because you, as, as you might remember, at the end of the 1800s, all the Nordic countries were really very, very poor, non-democratic uh, agrarian societies. It was even that bad that uh, at the end of the 1800s, 30% of the working population in Sweden alone emigrated mostly to the US because uh, people were, were starving, could not find, could not find work. And then just a few generations later, even before the Second World War, all the Scandinavian countries were at the top of the most rich, happy, stable, uh, industrial nations. And of course, the, this transition uh, has, has, many, uh, has many reasons, but, but a forgotten reason and as we argue in the book, perhaps the most important reason was the fact that we in all the Nordic countries back then had very visionary intellectuals and politicians who saw this great societal transition coming. They saw that industrialization was coming, urbanization was coming. And they knew that in times of rapid social change, It is just so natural for us humans to be looking for an external authority to hold on to, finding some sort of fixed point outside ourselves. 
And that could be a dogmatic religion, or it could be an authoritarian leader. But these politicians, they didn't want to be authoritarian leaders. They were firmly committed to build strong democracies. And they knew that the only way to build strong democracies are from the bottom up. So they wanted, or they realized that they needed to empower enough many co-creators of democracy and that these co-creators needed to be grounded enough in themselves and come so far in their personal development that they have internalized their moral compass, internalized locus of control, so that they could go out and become independent co-creators of democracy. So do you know how they managed to do that? And, well, and, yes. that, and that is really the Nordic, the Nordic secret. Huh? Well, but what I don't know actually what they did in those retreat centers. I think there yeah. were like over, over 100. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So we should tell the listeners that, that what they did was that they opened what, what uh, I sometimes jokingly call retreat centers. But that is actually what, what it, it was. They were called folk high schools. So they were, they were centers out in the countryside or often close to nature where uh, people could spend late, later with full state subsidy up to six months in retreat with the expressed aim of uh, finding their own inner moral compass. But how did or, they do that? Or using, again, Professor Robert Keegan's language to start the process of self-authoring. And I should just mention that this was a huge effort. So at the turn of the last century, year 1900, there were, 70, there were 100 centers like this in Denmark alone, 75 in Norway, and 150 in Sweden. So, right. uh, so when this was at its height, say almost exactly 100 years ago, then actually 10% of each young generation in the Nordic countries participated in one of these uh, six months uh, retreats. But do you know what actually happened in there? Yeah. Like what, what techniques, what methods were applied? Like how did they manage to bring, to, to, to bring the people to, 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 to growth? Yeah, you know, what... yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and first of all, I should just mention that that was really three things that these uh, uh, centers uh, concentrated on. And of course, I mean, why we wrote this book and why I'm, why I'm so eager to talk about this is, of course, that, that somehow I think that we are right now in the world going through an at, or at least equally dramatic societal change as when we went from agrarian into industrial societies. We are now leaving the industrial, the modern era, right. going through postmodern turbulence and, and something new is hopefully emerging. And my, my important uh, question is, what could we learn from this experience in the Nordic countries 100 years ago, when we are now going through a similar transformation? So what they did was they concentrated on three different things. It was the personal development aspect, which we will come back to. But then also they, they were looking at technological change. So they were preparing the participants for uh, the new technology coming in, the new industrialization, 
and making sure that, that people were not afraid of the new technology, but rather embracing it. And of course, translating that into today's situation, that we would today perhaps in a similar um, situation be looking at, okay, so what is artificial intelligence? What is blockchain? How will, how will artificial intelligence change the way that we are working? How can artificial intelligence and algorithms be uh, a threat or a challenge for us? And in what ways could they actually help us to, to live better lives? Right. So, so that was the second aspect. And then the third aspect was giving the participants basic tools to participate in civic society. So that could be, how, how do you set up a small NGO? How, how do you write a speech? How do you publish a small local uh, newspaper? And things like that. And today mm. that would translate into uh, helping people to, how do you uh, produce um, a podcast? Right. Mm. <laughs> uh, how do you do a, a, a YouTube video? How do you get your message across? How do you try to make your message go viral on, on social media right. and, and things like that. I'm, I'm asking because like a retreat center invokes some associations from, from meditation and yoga yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. like introspection. But of course, like in that time and era, all these Eastern techniques ha hadn't invaded the West, so, so to speak. And so, no, no, so, no, but, but interestingly enough, I mean, we, we could ask the question, so, so where did this inspiration uh, and this um, knowledge and understanding about the importance of inner personal transformation come from? And no, it didn't come from the East. Today we get a lot of uh, inspiration from the East, but they act, this actually came from the German idealist philosophers who were writing in the beginning of the 1800s. And we should remember that back then in Scandinavia, German was the main academic language. So all these politicians and intellectuals were actually reading these philosophers in original right. German texts. And they were philosophers like Goethe, Schiller, Herder, von Humboldt, Hegel. And all of these um, uh, philosophers, they reacted against the Enlightenment philosophers' view of our mind as a rational machine. So they would say very much in line with Eastern philosophy right. that no, our mind is not a rational machine. Our mind is actually not just in our brain. Our mind is embodied in the totality of our bodies and embedded in language and in culture. And perhaps most importantly, our mind is a complex organic self-organizing system that is capable of evolving right. throughout our life and develop throughout life. Mm. And this development of mind or development of consciousness, they called by the German name of Bildung, which in English would be something between formation and realization. Of, of your mind. And of course, that's very similar to, to the Eastern thinking that our consciousness is something that is evolving right. and that consciousness is something that we can work on throughout our life. Right. And that that is actually very important. One, th one thing that the German idealist philosophers might have emphasized more than 
many Eastern philosophers, was the link between our individual consciousness development and societal change. Right. We do, according to uh, Schiller and Herder, we do uh, our consciousness development not only for our own benefit, but to be able to participate in the creation of society. Right. And, th well, the, and then well, we come to the title of my latest sure. book, The World We Create. And sure. it's all about that. How we, through our own consciousness development, how, through our individual consciousness development, are able to take a more and more proactive part right. in the development of the, the world around us. So, yeah, bef let me just ask before we come to that, um, how, how was your personal voyage and to, to metamodernism and this kind of meta-thinking to looking for what, what is emerging, like how, like, did you, did you start out by reading Keegan or were you familiar kind of with the, with the integral theory or how was your personal voyage to, to that kind of understanding where we are and where we have to go and what kind of is important if we want to create a more sustainable future? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um... No, the, 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 the starting point was, um, I think, in, in, the, in my practical work uh, as an entrepreneur. Um, and uh, I, I started writing, but not publishing, but I started writing um, already when I was still um, active as an entrepreneur. And it was my experiences there with both the personal development of, of, uh, of uh, leaders, uh, the importance of, of corporate culture, as I mentioned. But another starting point was the fact that uh, I studied mathematics and physics at university and then a little bit of economic theory, neo, the neoclassical economic theory. And then when I got into banking and really tried to understand the functioning of the market. That is when I started to realize that the best understanding of the market and of the, the way that the world economy is working right now is not provided by economic theory, at least not classical economic theory, the neoclassical economic theory that is still taught at all uh, universities and And, and business schools. And that that, that that model of both the market and the actors in the market, this homo economicus, this rational uh, in the, in the individual, that those models can actually do more damage than help you in understanding what is actually going on in the market. So if you are a banker, investment banker, and you want to make money, those theories are not really helping you that much. Then the very new, sometimes called alternative economic theories, are much, much more uh, helpful in helping you to understand the market and making money in the market. And what do I mean by the new alternative economic theories? Well, that could be... Uh, economic uh, theories that 
go under the name of complexity economics, uh, realizing that the economic system is not uh, um, a system that is trying to reach an equilibrium of supply and demand, as the classical economic theory is, is, has as its starting point, but rather is constantly a uh, slightly chaotic system uh, on, on the edge of chaos, self-organizing. Right. So that's complexity economics. And other economics is behavioral economics, which is very popular now. Uh, and many of the Nobel Prizes in economics during the last 10 years have been awarded to research in, uh, in behavioral economics. And that is a field that is really sort of taking a very critical look at this homo economicus and saying, no, of course we humans are not these rational decision makers trying to uh, optimize our individual utility. Um, economic actors are actually much, much more complicated like uh, th than, than that. And there is a, uh, a lot of altruism and other aspects that we also need to take into account. And then the third uh, alternative ec economic discipline uh, that I would want to mention is institutional economics. And institutional economics is actually uh, uh, looking at the market from a completely different perspective than the, the neoliberal perspective. Usually we take the market as something given, a natural phenomenon. But institutional economics says that that is of course not the case the market is a human construct. It's constructed through the institutions, like the institution of ownership. What, what can you own? Who can own? What sure. can be patented? What can be copyrighted? If it can be patented, for how long could you hold a patent? Should we be able to patent human genes? Should we be able to patent I, ideas? And that it is actually these institutions and these decisions uh, around the uh, constitutive rules of the market that makes the market work. And if we change those constitutive rules of the market, the market will clear in a completely different way. Sure. And many of the problems we, we have today in, in, our, in our understanding of uh, the, the economic system and the problems they create, for example, the fact that... Uh, um, the markets seem to not at all take into account the effects on, on the environment. Insights from institutional economics can guide you in ways to, to make the market different and actually taking these things into account. So, so um, uh, to answer your original question, so how did, how did I come into the, this field of philosophy and, and how did I, uh, coming to contact with writers like Wilbur and Robert Keegan and other names that you mentioned, uh, that, that has been coming from the practical experience of seeing the importance of consciousness development and then later reading about the latest right. uh, uh, developmental psychological theories out of Harvard seeing that the market is a social construct, starting to realize that uh, this collective imaginary that we are living in 
is a human construct. And from that, starting to look at Wilbur's theories of models, Wilbur's four quadrants, for example, and, right. and, and things like that. Right. And then it's really putting all of these things, both the practical aspects and the theoretical aspects together. That is what I've done in this latest book now, The, the World We Create, so, From so God to Market. Exactly. So, so you, you spoke a lot about personal development and self-organization. How could that look like on a collective scale? You know, you're talking about how, what, what are the constituencies like to create a more conscious self-organizing world for the future? Like what, how, how would you approach that? Like how do you transfer individual development into, into a collective context? How, mm. how um, yeah, I, I think that's the question. Mm. Mm. So, I, so I think one could um, approach that question from, from, from two directions. One is going from the individual to, to the organization, but the other way is going from the organization to, to, to the individual. And if, if we start from that because it's i'm sorry because it's a very practical question yeah. because that's that's the whole point of of the issue how how do you get like a, a philosophy or, or a meta theory to have appliances in the real world and to do actual systems change so that that is that is a very practical thing and so and so and i think that is, is a question that has to be answered in order to you know to to, to actually change something you know? yeah yeah so, so so, so looking at this uh, uh, relationship, starting from the organizational point of view, then um, quite, quite a lot of organizations today realize that the world is changing so rapidly that the old way of organizing the, the business does not work any longer. You, you need to uh, delegate a lot of strategic decision to people who are closer to the rapidly changing re reality. And then that can then quite easily on the whiteboard be translated into new self-organizing organizational structures. But that is only on the, on the whiteboard. When, when you then try to do this in reality, as, as we said before, many organizations notice that this doesn't work. And one thing that, that quite a few organizations noted is that the, the, the rate of burnout amongst employees actually go up. They, they had hoped that being more in control of a situation themselves, that that would increase the well-being of the employees. But in some cases, it actually, for some employees, has the opposite effect. And then, then is when you realize that you, you need to make this connection to the, the personal inner capacities of uh, the individual uh, employees, their inner skills, their inner transformative skills or their inner maturation. And in very simplistic terms, again, I mean, this inner development is a development that takes place in many, many different uh, dimensions. But one dimension and one aspect is this that we mentioned before, this going from a socialized mind where you are dependent on uh, 
external reference points and guidance for, for your way of making meaning and making sense of the world to be able to start your sense making from a more inner grounded point. So if you haven't reached that yet, then you, you, you will not feel at home in a self-organizing organization. Right. So then the practical question becomes, how can such an organization support all their uh, employees to develop those in the capacities that right. are necessary to be functioning in a, in a modern, sorry, in a, in a, self-organizing organization right let me let it put it differently because i was just reading up in regard of protest public protests in general and and how there's a big gap between um, public protests say against climate change or whatever um, and and the actual politics You know, and so there are very there are a lot of historians who question the effects of public protests can have. Although having with doing it with the best intentions, there is there is a gap. So you see all these these climate protests, but the actual political change is very small in relation to that. You can you can uh, read up to the uh, Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movements back to the 60s. Um, The actual change was not facilitated by by the people going on the streets because but more because of internal mechanisms mechanisms of politics or business and so th there's a disconnect you know of course we can have like our our ideals and we can personally uh, mature but how how do you change the system from within i think that's that's the, mm -hmm. the question how yeah. do you how do you facilitate um, different politics different different economics and and you know because because i fear that those public protests and these demonstrations are actually sometimes um, negating its its own agendas mm -hmm. in, in yeah 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 uh, uh, um, I I, def I definitely uh, um, agree with you, and and this is a problem on 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 many levels. One, one observation is, of course, that these movements, or when we are acting as as engaged citizens or as social entrepreneurs. Uh, it's important from what inner condition we are acting. And if we are acting out of fear or anger, that creates a certain kind of response and pushback from the system. And if you can instead act from uh, a more grounded space of urgency but not anger or hatred then the chances to uh, have a more positive response from the system and not getting into a negative feedback system feedback loop between your 
project or or the movement and the system right. itself. So, Kubler-Ross comes to mind, like yeah. with the five stages, and sometimes with the protest movements, I fear and I suspect there's a lot of anger and denial yet, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and not um, the real acceptance of, say, at least our own mortality in a way. Yeah. And so we have, at some point, I, I was just arguing a couple of days ago, at some point, we as a human race, we will fail like every other living organism on this planet it might be in 50 years in 5000 years in 500000 years but there will be a point when we fail and end and this is a kind of normal process and i think we 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 are quite a young species but we haven't been um we haven't been come to terms with our own mortality and so we are protesting all these these things that are obviously wrong but i think to facilitate transformation we have to we have to come to terms with our mortality, mortality because then we can act, for lack of a better word, wisely. You know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that's ab uh, absolutely, absolutely right. And and we started uh, this podcast by t talking about this emerge gathering that uh, I just come back from 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 Kiev. We actually started that on the evening before. Uh, the first day by going down into the catacombs, going down into the underground under Kiev with the intention of facing our fears and facing our uh, more mortality. Right. So, so I, I can just completely, completely agree with you there. So, so that is one uh, level. That's, that's the level of, of, what is the internal state that my social activism comes from. But then the next um, um, reflection on your question uh, could, could be to again go back in time and to realize that the transition that I think that we are in right now is not a transition where we can just be able to change policies a little bit and change politics and doing the small tweaks here and there. I think we are into a radical and totally fundamental shift in society that, that is equally uh, great, if not greater, uh, than when we went from the pre-modern to the modern society during the Enlightenment and the French Revolution and, 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 and all of this. So. Uh, I think that the lack of incremental change as a result of these protest movements, we shouldn't be surprised about that. We are building up to some sort of tipping point, and then there will be a fundamental change in the system. But again, at such a bifurcation point, that change could go in either way. It could lead to a fragmentation and breakdown of the system just as well as it could lead to an emergence of a, of a new, more complex and more elegant way of, uh, of organizing our society. And I think that what is going to determine which way um, the evolution will go is very much determined on, as in any complex self-organizing system, the capacity of the different components of the system, in this case, us humans, to be able to start relating in more complex way, more deeper ways 
to each other. So I think this is a, basically a relational and meaning-making capacity problem. And if we can help more people to be able to relate in deeper ways to each other, expand our circles of belonging, and also expand our meaning-making capacity to be able to see more depth and nuances in the world and not just prefer the simple answers to the complicated questions. Right. Let's build a wall. Let's take back control, but rather face the, the new world in all of its uh, complexity. Right. And going back then to, uh, to the last time, to the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, we, sh we should remember that this is exactly what prompted Schiller and Goethe and Helder to start thinking about this, about interpersonal development, because they had put so much hope in the French Revolution, and they thought that this could be the start of a new way of organizing the world and in a, a democratic world order. But that is, of course, not what happened. You had the revolution, and then almost immediately after the French had got rid of their king, the population started to look for a new strong leader. Right. And first they found Robespierre, and then later Napoleon. And there was no real change. Yes, the king was gone, but now instead you have a dictator as Robespierre or Napoleon, who eventually crowned himself emperor. And, and of course... Schiller and Goethe and, and those philosophers really started to think, why did this happen? And the, the answer to that, that Schiller spells out in very, very clear ter terms, is exactly that not enough many people in the French society had reached the inner maturity of what we today would call self-authoring. Right they were all still dependent on an external authority. And once the external authority, the king was gone, they were immediately starting to look for a new one. Right. So for Schiller and Goethe, in order to really have lasting fundamental societal change, that has to start with inner personal development of uh, a sufficiently large amount of people in in the population. And again, right. this is what the Nordic um, intellectuals and politicians uh, took to heart. And that's why they started this program of large scale consciousness development uh, right. in the country, the Volksbildung right. project. Let me, let me ask a sort of heretic question because also to bring all this kind of together, because you know, from a biological perspective, We have animals and they are adapted to their niche. And if the niche changes, they have to adapt to the niche or they die out. That's, that's the basic idea. So now what, what we are facing now is, is that our niche is completely changing, not only in, in uh, technological ways, but more importantly in climate ways. And so we, we have to adapt or we will perish in a way. So, and, and that's, that's the, 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 the first premise, but the other one is that, and, and we talked about this, um, that economics and business and corporations, it's kind of a self-organizing orthopoetic system. Mm. You know? So it's, it's not, it's like Luhmann, the, the sociologist wrote a big deal about how those systems 
sciences and other system or religion, how they create their own realities and react to that, and and that the actual individual is kind of it's kind of at the periphery of that system. And so now, when I bring those two things together, uh, my my heretic question would be if we can actually do something, because like. Um, or if, if we should trust the orthopoetic mechanism of the market to respond to climate crisis um, in, in order to survive. You, yeah. you, so, so because like we, we talked about the, the, the forces of the market, you know, and, and what they can achieve. And, and if we just keep the market and the, 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 the corporations and, capitalism so to speak like um up to speed to to the uh, changing niche maybe that's that's a way of of preserve our survival mm-hmm. yeah okay so so that's a heretic so, question so, yeah, yeah. so so first i want to, to 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 comment on the fact that our niche is changing and that is of course true and to some respect uh, we humans, through the technological development that has always been going on since we invented fire, our, our niche has been changing. Um, but you are very rightly in pointing out that right now we go through a very special movement in history, I think, when it comes to the way that our niche is changing. And you were mentioning the climate aspect. Yes, we are moving from a world where climate, which some climate scientists have been labeling uh, an empty planet, where we humans could just use the planet as a, as a resource for, for uh, us humans into what the same climate scientists now call a full planet, where the human impact on the environment is, is total. So that, that is for the first time in the history of humanity that this has happened. But there are two other things that are happening at the same time that I think is worth noticing. And one is that we are going from a world where, yes, technological change has happened. I mean, we invention of agriculture, invention of printing press and the industrialization. But those shifts in, uh, in technology, we humans were usually able to adapt to between generations. So if I was a farmer at the end of the 1800s, my father was a farmer and my grandfather was probably a farmer, but my children moved into the city and became factory workers. Whereas now technological development is going so quickly that we have to adapt during our lifetime. And we humans are not made for that, essentially. We are made to be born into a niche and we are very, very well uh, suited to adapt to very many different niches. But once we have grown up in a niche, reconfiguring ourselves midlife and perhaps many times midlife or throughout life uh, is difficult for us. And this is the first time in the history of humanity that we are facing this. And then the final thing, which gives me hope, is the fact that we humans have been, uh, at least since the invention of agriculture, been living in a world of, uh, characterized by scarcity. Uh, and we have had to fight for uh, 
our survival in competition with with other uh, humans and other animals and um, now with the, with with the rapid technological development we might actually be moving into a world of abundance from scarcity to abundance perhaps not in in every material aspect aspect because this abundance would still have to be an abundance within planetary boundaries but i'm i'm pretty sure that we have already reached a technological level that if the resources of humanity were to be distributed more equitably we would actually be able to have to be living in, a, in an abundance of well-being and that is the first time and then go, going back to 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 the market um, how do you uh, sorry to interrupt you how do you just just for a quick Uh, sure. Question: How? What? What is your position to capitalism? Because there, I, I just recently saw saw a video by Jonathan Haidt where he compared like two yeah, competing yeah. stories about yeah, capitalism. But, but, okay, but let me answer that question then in in this uh, in the light of that we perhaps now through technological development are going from a world of of scarcity into a world of abundance. So then you could say that if you look at this from from uh, with a pair of humanistic glasses looking at this as news for humanity then of course if we do do not any longer have to work 40 hours every week 40 years of our lives this is great news for humanity fantastic what can we do with that how can we self-actualize how can we invent art and literature what, what could we do with this this is great news for for humanity But if you instead look at this through the lens of the market, through the lens of the labor market, this is bad news. This is mass unemployment. What shall we do with this mass unemployment? So my view on capitalism is that the market in its present implementation and capitalism, I think was exactly what humanity needed a couple of hundred years ago to take us out of this material scarcity where people were in Sweden starving and freezing to death even in the end of the in of the end of the 1800s so capitalism was exactly what we and the market economy was exactly what we needed also the enlightenment worldview of the world the scientific rationalistic worldview was exactly what what we needed as humanity two or three hundred years ago but at the same time today i think that we have reached the end of the usefulness of perhaps both the enlightenment worldview and the capitalistic system in its present implementation and it might even be that this worldview rationalistic scientific worldview is the root cause of most of our problems that we have today and that the only way for us as humanity to really transform our societal system is through a transformation of our worldview 
the way well, there's no look. doubt about it the solutions of today are the problems of tomorrow yeah, yeah. Know, it's always it's always so like so, so uh yeah so so changing our view the view the world view in the way that we view ourselves the way we view uh our society the way we view uh nature but also in the way we we view the market and the capitalistic system and democracy realizing that both those systems are human constructs they are not natural systems they are human constructs that was very helpful 200 years ago back then we couldn't construct a democratic system in any other way that we in one end of the country we elected one or two persons we put them in a carriage drawn by a horse to go to the capital to take part of parliament and represent us that was the only way to do it today we have other ways of of doing these things and i certainly both believe and hope that in 20 years time we will still uh, have both the market and democracy but i think that not the least the latest technological development in fields like blockchain and and other will make new implementations of both the market and democracy available and that these new implementations will actually be much 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 more beneficial for the both for the majority of the earth's population and for the planet and environment itself do you think universal basic income makes sense in context of self maturation and growth or is it a is it a contrapoint to that mm -hmm. that that i think uh, to uh, to understand my view my view on that i think the uh, the concept of um, uh, the three horizons uh, theory developed by bill chart is very helpful i don't know if you're familiar with the three horizons no so the three horizons basically say that we 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 are now living in a system today and we need to uh, act within that system and change that system immediately that's the first horizon what can we do with the present system then you have the third horizon that's where we want to be with our organization in five years or with society in in 20 years and for me in the third horizon we are in a completely different societal system that we cannot today even imagine and again that is the question what is emerging what could that right. what could what could that be the second horizon is the temporary things that we might need to put in place in order to go from the present system into the future desired system and i think universal basic income might serve a role as a second horizon uh, right. implementation Right. Yeah, when we when we uh, when we go from yeah. scarcity to abundance, for this not to become a, a, a collapse of the labor market and and becoming completely um, uh, um, a humanitarian uh, disaster, we might need something like a basic human income as a bridge. I don't think that's the long term. Uh, answer but certainly as a bridge if we put this in as a bridge i think as you 
as you indicated, that that will have to come with uh, a focus on our individual ability to find meaning and purpose in life. Because just receiving money um, can be um, disastrous, I would even say, for our personal meaning making. Right. And if you if you allow me, I, I, I would want to tell you in this respect uh, uh, quite a personal uh, thing, personal story. Um, during my, my years as an, uh, as an entrepreneur, both in, in uh, property and banking, I've, I've seen quite a lot of uh, people in my, uh, that were close to me becoming financially independent in the middle of their lives. Could be 10, 20 people, some, some of them just about financially independent and, and some uh, really rich. And I would say from, from my small uh, sample there of 10, 20 people, persons, for, 50, for half of them becoming financially independent, not having to worry about money, was good news. Th th they could really do what they wanted with, with life and self-actualize and, and, and really live the purpose of their life. But for the other half, this was actually bad news. Because if, um, if making money has been both giving both a structure to your life, but then perhaps making a fortune, if that was the goal of your, of your life, uh, reaching that goal in the, in the middle of your life, say in your mid-40s, that of course poses the question, what do I do now? Mm. And one of my closest friends and partners, I was actually best man at his first wedding when he was 25 years old. Um, when he became financially in, independent and he had something like a hundred million um, pounds or a hundred million dollars in cash at that point, um, he lost the direction. And he started to uh, search for uh, new meaning in life. And here, of course, our secular society doesn't help us much in, 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 in that meaning-making or meaning-searching. So uh, um, if money was not the meaning of life, which he soon realized, then perhaps it was fame. Perhaps it was pleasure. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, some... Uh, Five years uh, after he had sold his uh, business, he was completely um, um, stuck in, in alcohol and drugs. And then uh, five years later, he had spent or lost uh, all his money and he moved back to live in his father's basement, completely broke. And uh, two weeks ago, I participated at his funeral. Oh, really? Yeah. 55 years old. 
and I would say what, what uh, and, and this was a decent guy. I mean, when decent guy, intelligent guy, but the fact that he got independently wealthy and couldn't really find a new solid purpose in life, right. uh, that broke him down completely. And he eventually died from, died from that under tragic circumstances. So tying this to universal basic income, uh, yeah, universal basic income might be something that we need to put in uh, as a temporary measure. But if we do not help ourselves in our ability to find meaning and purpose in life at the same time, then um, this might not necessarily be a, a good solution. Right, right. So there again, personal inner development and societal change goes hand in hand. And especially yeah, at like, this crucial like... point in humanity, where we might not in the future, all of us need to work 40 hours a day, 40 um, years of our lives to make that good news. We, we need to look at inner development as well. Right. I'm, I'm kind of uh, on the fence regarding universal basic income because I think in a way it, it's capitalism is such a, a strong evolutionary force and had so huge effect still today. I think I, I saw some some statistics where what, what is it like by the 19th century like 95 percent of people were poor living below the poverty line and now it's like 20 23 percent something like that but don't forget don't forget that the capitalistic system good and strong as it is and again i've been an investment banker for 20 years uh so i believe in the strength of the capitalistic system and the market but don't forget that it is a human invention and right, the but basic this, this, rules of the market yes. that were put in place a hundred years ago might need to be updated today. Exactly. No, no, I, I completely... that we are constantly doing this update, but right. this update is mainly done through the input of lobbyists. Right. from the banking sector, from the pharma sector, from the media sector, uh, whatever. And these updates are today mainly used to consolidate corporate power rather than to uh, develop uh, our No, no, there, there's no question about it. Even Mark Blythe, he talks a lot about updating the software again and again and again. But, you know, what, what I wanted to say is, and, and I think, yes, it, capitalism is a, is a sort of social construct. But at the same time, I think it's so successful because it taps in into some, say, uh, biological um, or neurological aspects of our being. I mean, to to strive, to to fight, to to um, wrestle with chaos in a kind of way. So, so that, that, that's a deep, that's a deep human urgent instinct, yeah, and, yeah. and and in some way. Capitalism, as, as, as the historically only system, is able to tap into that, uh, into that deep-rooted nature of our being, and, and is able to facilitate that striving. And so, yeah, so as, as horrible as it sounds, I, I, sometimes I think we humans need this ability to strive for something. You know, if, if you take yeah, that away... Yeah. No, 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 go, go back to my... my business friend and, and partner again that I just uh, told you about, uh, he thrived in that environment 
and and once the need for uh, daily ch uh, facing those challenges disappeared right. he lost purpose and sure. meaning and got depressed so yeah i, I totally uh, right. uh, agree with you we 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 we, we need that we, right. we need that but, us, but, but at the same time we need to do that within a system that is as fair as possible and that it takes care of the environment and nature in a much much better way than the present implementation of the market does so in your your opinion how could a post postmodern society look like like we talk about things that are emerging now what are the practical visions you have not not from a meta standpoint but like more more practical i mean certainly you have heard of holacracy as a practical application, yeah, simple, yeah, yeah. or even universal basic income. All these are parts of an ongoing conversation about practical things that we can do. So, like, what are your visions? How, what, what can, you know, apart from, yeah. you know, taking more responsibility um, about our own development, like, and I think that's, that's in a way where Hansi Freinacht and Metamodern and the Listening Society comes in, which I think it's a great contribution and counter um, Uh, designed to, to, to the integral theory because it, it focuses more on, 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 on action, on social action, on, on social engineering, so, so to say. So, but what, what, are, your, what are your visions for, okay. for okay, that? Okay, so then perhaps I, I could bring uh, a third perspective there from, you mentioned integral, you, meant, you mentioned metamodern. If I would add something uh, there, uh, which I do in the book, The World We Create, it is actually trying to uh, see the, at least the contours of uh, a new paradigm, of a new worldview. And, that, and, I, and I can actually be quite specific there and say, um, if there is something that could really help us forward in this shift, It would be that we all realize that we need to change our worldview in at least five fundamental ways. And they are quite easy to understand. And I, and I will quickly go through them. And, and the first is the view of ourselves, that we need to leave the Enlightenment philosophers' view of ourselves as these Uh, utility-maximizing independent individuals and start to realize that we are also very much more interconnected than we previously thought and that our individual well-being is very much dependent on the well-being of the people around ourselves. That's the first. The second is to go from a, a worldview that is basically looking at everything in our world as things to a worldview of looking at most aspects of our world as processes, as ongoing processes, as self-organizing processes, realizing that nothing is st static and that it's much, much more productive to look on the world as interconnecting, evolving systems. Okay? The third is the view of our mind, 
again, going away from, from the view of our mind as a thing to realizing that our mind is a self-organizing, evolving system and that that evolution of our mind or of our consciousness can be ongoing lifelong and can be supported and that an important aspect of this societal transition is actually helping more people evolve. Number four is realizing that a large part of our world, 95% of our world is socially constructed and that society is not an object independent of us, but rather that the 95% of our world is socially constructed and that we constantly take part of the replication and recreation of that social world, that social imaginary of nations, of presidents, of money and all of these aspects. They are well, nature is not socially constructed. No, I would, no, I, no. I would say nature is no, still... No, no, absolutely. And my favorite example there is uh, oxygen and money. And, and this is also as a... Uh, because you said 95% yeah, of our human world. Right. But a caricature of postmodernism is, of course, that the postmodern philosopher believes that everything is socially constructed. But of course not. Nature is, is, is not. So as, as a human being, you are perhaps in today's society equally dependent on oxygen and money. You need oxygen to survive and you need money to survive, okay? And as an individual, you cannot do anything about that. On a collective level, even if all of humanity came together and said, let's not be dependent on oxygen, we couldn't change that fact, no. Whereas if we as humanity go together and say, let's change our dependency sure. on money, we could do that. Okay. The interesting thing is that in today's world, it sometimes looks like we have confused this and look upon it like the opposite way, thinking that, for example, the planetary boundaries is something that we can negotiate with, whereas the market forces, it's something that we just have to obey. Right. When it's actually the, 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 the opposite. And, right. then the, and then the final, the fifth change in worldview is going away from seeing... Uh, material uh, growth and material development as an end in itself and starting to realize the in importance of uh, purpose and meaning uh, in our lives, both right. on an individual level, but also on a collective level. Right. The narratives that we tell about ourselves are meta-narratives that the postmodern philosophers tell us correctly that every meta-narrative is just a human construct. And they right. say, therefore, they are worthless. Whereas I say, yeah, they are just human constructs, but we humans need narratives. And therefore we need to construct our own narratives. And constructing the narrative for the new society is one of the most important tasks that is facing humanity right now, I would argue. Right. Like, like um, it's more of an intuition, but like when, when you look at all the people who came to the um, festival in Kiev, to the gathering, 
Like I, I imagine it was like kind of a illustrious crew of people who are aware of all those things we are talking about, but are also facing some apart from from um, facing some social conundrums, so to speak, with with the world we live in, but also facing some individual conundrums. Because, uh, because as far as I, I, I check, it's, it's a far, it's a, it's a pretty diverse group of people from all over the place, from all over the world, which means that like we, we are entirely connected via internet. You know, I mean, like we're talking now via Zoom, and this is like has a lot of benefits because we can connect, but it's it's kind of lonely weird on the other side because you yeah. have to do it by by zoom and you're not you're not sitting on a table with a glass of wine and you can as you can do in, in more traditional um, modern mindsets and so I, I think like a lot for a lot of people it's like their environment is like this so mm -hmm. how 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 what are your thoughts about that is it something you, you could observe or something? No, that... no, no, absolutely. Abs abs absolutely. And um, I, th I think this is a bit of, of, of a paradox that, as you say, as the planet shrinks and communication becomes so much more e easy and news and information travels so much, much more rapidly, we as human beings, we still need this um, local um, connectedness, the, the local rootedness. And I think that this is something that, if I can say we as globalists have forgotten and is part of the problem right now in, 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 in the world that we both on an individual level can feel quite rootless, unrooted, not grounded. And we are also forgetting that other people also need to have, uh, have this um, groundedness. And just looking at the situation right now in, in London where I live with uh, the Brexit, and this need for, for, for people to feel to be in control and take back control and the reaction against the, the globalization movement. I think we need to find the right balance here. We need to realize that we as humans, we, we need to be local. We need, we need to have a local culture. We need to be, be grounded at the same time as we have to recognize that as the planet is becoming smaller and smaller and the environmental problems are becoming greater and greater, some of the, the issues that are facing humanity, we can only solve if we cooperate on a global scale. Right. So it's, it's being global and local at the same time and right. that we need to make sure that we don't forget either of those uh, poles and that, that this is also a little bit about this personal development. Again, our, we tend to, through our personal development, to expand our circles of 
belonging. And if we globalists like Hillary Clinton did start calling those that are not really with us in this, the deplorables and not realizing that their worries are expressions of uh, true human needs. Of course. And that we all need to be able to uh, walk before we run. And then we need to see where we all are on our developmental journey through life and right. to make it an important part of both our individual lives, but also important part of our organizations and of society to help each other on this never ending developmental journey. I don't know what, what the English translation, I was just trying to check it up. For Kant, um, you, you, maybe you know it from, from Germany, Selbstverschuldete Unmündigkeit, which is like yeah. the concept yeah. which Kant had in, yeah. when, when, the, when the modernity came up. You, you know the translation yeah. of that in English? Yes, yeah, 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 yes. It's, it's the, the, uh, the self-inflicted uh, non-maturation. Um, I mean, we, when, when you are unmutig, uh, that means that you have not yet... Uh, come of age and you are not yet you do yeah, not irresponsibility have, like yeah but you do not have yeah but you do not have have uh, legal rights as an individual per person and Kant meant that humanity was was still sort of in that capacity and trans or in that state and translating that into develop modern mo developmental no, I, I was just i was sorry to interrupt you because yeah. i was just I, i was looking for you know kant did this with the upcoming modernity in a way and yeah. he said that is like the pathology every citizen has to overcome and yeah. so i was thinking to, uh, just in the last couple of days so what what would be the equivalent for today and it's i think it's kind of a, a kind of an existential loneliness because of this because of this uh missing rootedness in the world and so it's, it's like self it's self-inflicted because you're striving and you try to mature but it brings you somehow in a lonely position you have to every moment you have to be aware and to connect and and, and not not uh, um, you know with the people around you and and, and to make a, an effort not to exclude and as you talk about the Not, these are deplorables, not to think in that way, but to be more aware, more in inclusive of the world you're living in. And so to overcome this kind of existential dread, which, which and I think everybody who um, is at that point is experiencing to some, in some form or another. And so it's, it's, you know what I'm talking about? It's like Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and uh, again, Professor Robert Keegan, is sometimes talking about the fact that we in today's society, many of us feel that we are in over our heads. Right. Me meaning that the demands of society or the organization that we are working as is actually beyond our present uh, uh, capacity. Right. And we, we need to uh, develop our inner capacities and skills to be able to live up to those uh, Uh, demands and again right. it's very much this that we need to develop this capacity of of self-authoring to actually right. be able to to our by ourselves navigate our 
our lives or our function in an organization or what, what to do with our agency as a, as a citizen. Right. How do we express these, a, this agency, both as individuals, as acting in an organization and as a, as a citizen? And today's world put completely different demands on us than just the industrial society did 50 years ago or the rural agriculture society of 200 years ago. Right. Each new society puts more demands on Yeah, us. this is like from, from a different vantage point, saying the same is, uh, is we, we are, what we do now is in a way shaping the discussions of the future generations. And so that's like the, the, the big picture we somehow have to invoke sometimes to, you know, why the means to an end is not, I, I'm self-authoring, I'm transcending for my own means. You know, there's something beyond that, that, that uh, the result of that should be that the whole discussion for the next generation is somewhat informed by that. You know? No, 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 ab ab abs absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's also a matter of, uh, somehow re realizing that we in our lifelong maturation if we are lucky enough we can we can start to self-actualize but that self-actualization is not the end of our developmental journey that there is actually a step beyond self-actualization which is self-transcending right when you are starting to look more into the common, the coming generations and starting to take perspectives of that is beyond your own lifetime. And I think that that is the sort of the, the sort of ability that is necessary for us to really take on the environmental cha challenges, right. because there we need to be able to, to transcend our own individual lifetime and actually authentically care for coming generations. Are you an yeah. optimist? Are you an optimist in the way that you think like a challenge like climate crisis or uh, poverty or the migrant crisis, all this is like, yeah, we, can, we, we, we will and we can overcome that? Or is, are you more like a, like, like a pessimist? Like, or I, I don't know, I'm yeah. asking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think humanity is right now up for its biggest challenge yet it is on a level that humanity has never shown any proof of being able to to uh, meet that challenge uh, and that's of course scary i wouldn't be be doing the work that i am doing and spending my energy on this mission if I didn't believe that we have a good chance of making it through, of, uh, of living up to this challenge. But it is not going to happen automatically. There will have to be uh, an enormous effort by many, many, many uh, people. Right. And the um, question is, will we be able to... to uh, to, to do that, and will we be able to do it in time? 
because we do not have that much uh, we don't have that much time right what i always think about i don't know you're, you're probably familiar with bucky fuller yeah and so and so his idea of, of the critical path so for those who don't know like he, he used the example of the apollo missions where kennedy was the initial factor yeah. and so like by the by in the course of eight eight nine years i don't know how many hundred thousand people were converging on this path bringing the first men to the moon which had the effect that we had like this first image of the of the globe of the earth hanging in, in, in space and which basically shaped our collective consciousness about who we are and so yeah. and so he described it as an evolutionary as a critical path and i and i always wonder why why don't we do that more often you know it's like like why why hasn't politics like uh real come to the realization that 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 we that we actually want to do something You know that you yeah. can can yeah. you bring the, the 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 intentions and the ideas and the workforce of people together to achieve a certain goal and it's like sometimes it reminds me as as if we are like a boat without a like a without a haven or a port or something but if you yeah. if you bring the people together and like like greater is somewhat doing you know but i mean like on a on a policy level That would yeah. be so interesting what we could do and if we could enter some critical path. Yeah, yeah. I, I write about that in, in my latest book uh, a, a bit. And my, my take on that is that it is much easier for us humans to, to uh, be enthusiastic about a, a concrete goal, like putting a man on the moon. I mean, that, that, that is very uh, tangible. We all understand that. And we have now entered in, in, into a, a time when, again, technological development is so rapid that we do not know what the world will look like in 10 years, let alone 20 years. So it's so difficult today to... Uh, paint a clear picture of where we want to be in 20 years. It was much, much more e easy a hundred years ago to have a utopia and vision and say, this is where we want to go. Come on, let's, let's work together for this. And my conclusion in the book is that, okay, so today it's, it might be too childish to try to point at a certain end result of, of, humanity's development and say this is where we want to be in 20 or 50 years time but then to just resign and say well then we don't know where we don't know where we want to go so then let's just let the market and democracy sort of take us wherever it wants to take us i think that's the wrong wrong uh, answer i think if we don't cannot have a clear vision about the end result then we have to focus on the process and saying, okay, so what would the good process look like that is taking us in a positive direction for humanity? And that is a much, much more abstract question. And it's not that easy to communicate, but I think that is exactly what we need to do. Mm. We need to focus on what is, how can we design a good process? that is taking us as humanity where in a direction that is good both 
for the people, the majority of people, and for the planet. Right. And, and I think that that is possible. I think at least we, we could come up with processes that are much, much more um, uh, efficient and beneficial than we have today. And in some respects, I even think that our processes have, uh, are worse today than they might have been 50 years ago when it comes to collective sense-making. Again, looking at the political chaos in, in, in the United Kingdom, for example, just one example. It, it looks like our ability to have any collective sense-making and to exercise collective agency is uh, at a low level. You could also internationally look at the uh, environmental problem, the fact that we know what needs to be done, but we cannot sort of uh, right. act collectively in in that way. Yeah, so in that regard, it would be nice to bring those two together, like a process-oriented view and like a certain goal. Because I, th I think you need both. Like, like, like. Yeah, well, at least you can express the end result in, in, in abstract terms. You can say that, yeah, we, we need to have a sustainable planet and we need to have an uh, equitable distribution of, uh, of uh, the, res the, the, the resources and the spoils of the technological evolution. And we need to have a world where each humans, each individual's uh, full potential for lifelong development is uh, supported and encouraged. I mean, it's not that difficult to, to have at least some, some goals and then say, okay, if, that, if that's where we want to go, well, let's design the process. And there are experts in process design. Right. So. No, I also would argue that, that goals and something like will or volition is something which is loathed in postmodernity, you know? And so I think... No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, Absolutely. and so you have to bring that back at least to a certain extent because we just, you know, it just works so well. You can, you can live your life so much better if you have like a, a, a value system and something you want to achieve. No, 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 no. Absolutely. But we should keep, of course, the valuable postmodern um, uh, insights. So whereas, whereas in, in modernity, we might have thought that the goal and the progress and all of that was just uh, inevitable. The postmodern insight is that any human value system and any human narrative and any human purpose is a human construct. Okay, okay, yeah, that is true, but we still need them. So then what we need to do is to, to self-consciously construct them. Right. And, and that is the next step. Yeah. And the step out of of postmodernity is to re realize the human predicament, but still face it. Yeah, and this is like what I what I think connects all those post postmodern meta theories, be it like integral or meta modernism or, or performatism. I think in, a, in in the preliminary talk we talked a little bit about this because like you know you know it's socially constructed, but that doesn't alleviate you from like choosing it consciously and enacted as if it would be true and so and i think hansi freinach speaks of this ironic sincerity you know to to know to have both 
uh, aspects in your hand and you know you can you choose it but it's but it's not a fixed given or an essential thing but something you choose in order to create yourself and the future and the world you live in in a way and so yeah 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 and and of course uh, I, I, I am i am an atheist uh, I, I don't believe in any at least not in any traditional god but at the same time setting this goal and the meaning system that was the main purpose of our religions and when we have now at least in large part of of the western world got got rid of religion the the, the old types of religion which i think essentially is is good news uh, we shouldn't forget that these existential questions and these uh, directional questions and value structures of our society those questions are still here amongst us and we need to deal with them from uh, from a secular perspective and so far we we have not done that we have somehow right. thought that these things will sort themselves out right. but i think that we see that that is not what is happening and and that, that is part of the explanation, both from the resurgence of religion, but also nationalism and, and, and these questions. It's, it's essentially a, a, a lack of um, meaning-making capacity on the current system, systemic level that mm -hmm. forces us to revert back into more primitive even even postmodern identity politics today wouldn't work so well in a kind of way if it were connected like deeply ethnocentristic religious thinking you know and tribal thinking and so it's like yeah. you, you can't just deny some previous stages of development but you have to integrate them as as yeah. we were saying yeah, yeah. that that also means like yeah we goals and and like some telos in a way that's like an essential part and and to just get rid of it just because we had some bad history with it doesn't yeah. mean that that it's not that agency is not something we we deep, deeply need and and have to employ to create something better no no absolutely and, and to summarize and that might be a good ending point would, would be to say that uh, what, what is binding and and connecting many of these post-postmodern uh, uh, theories and thinkers is an understanding that th there is some truth both in the uh, indigenous worldview and way of living, in the religious pre-modern worldview and way of living, in modernity and in science, and in the postmodern insights. And what we sure. now need to try to do is to integrate those uh, truths and perspectives even though we will see that they do not fit harmoniously together <laughs> but rather will create paradoxes and multi-perspective of thinking and that is a much much more difficult way of seeing and thinking and living but that is actually the level of complexity that we need to develop inside ourselves to match the complexity of the world outside of ourselves as the world is evolving right now. Right. So um, the world we create now available in bookstores it just came out uh, um, a couple of days ago in English. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, right. 
it's uh, the English edition of my Swedish book that was out two years ago. Right. But it is uh, not just a translation, it's also a, a new edition and it is, it is out since uh, one week now. If somebody wants to read up or, or visit your website, you have a personal website called? Th uh, Thomas, without an H, hyphen Bjorkman.com. Okay, perfect. Or just, or just search uh, Thomas Bjorkman on the net and oh, right. you'll find the links. <laughs> okay. okay, Thomas, thank you very much for doing thank this, you. For, taking, for taking the time and, and chatting about it was all a these pleasure. things. It was a thank pleasure. you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. <laughs>